a picture of Bolt crossing the line. It was on news desks globally within 59 seconds. So. Hello, fellow sports photographers. My name is Dean Octoropoulos, or All Sports Snapper, as I'm called by no one but user my social media, and I'm a sports photographer working full-time for Getty Images. Welcome to the Sports Photography Philosophy Podcast, where I have open discussions with the world's best sports photographers, as well as speak about my experiences covering events around the world. In this podcast, you will get an insight behind the long lenses from the men and women who fill our sports pages, websites, and magazines with amazing imagery. Previous listeners, you all know the drill by now, but for the newbies, any questions, comments, get in contact with me via Twitter or on Instagram on All Sports Snapper, one word, or my website, allsportsnapper.com. Today's show is with a Getty Images photographer at the top of his game. You will have seen his name pop up with various international awards, but my main reason for this chat is that this Australian took one of the most iconic images from the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. As a listener to this podcast, you will know the famous smiling Usain Bolt image, taken by none other than Mr. Cameron Spencer. Sydney-based, his work has graced global publications for over a decade. And the years of hard work exploded last year with two images that made a splash with websites, magazines, and of course, the most important thing in the world to most people, social media. A unique position for a sports photographer to have all three going off at once. We chat about how it all began, his transition from Getty office to Getty Snapper, working at major events, drones, becoming a celebrity, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy the Sports Photography Philosophy Podcast. Hello, sports photographers. Welcome to the Sports Photography Philosophy Podcast. And today I have a, another very special guest, a uh, fellow Australian. Um, let's uh, start with your name and uh, where you're from, please, sir. Uh, my name is Cameron Spencer, and I'm a staff photographer with Getty Images based in Sydney, Australia. Okay, Cameron, I've known you for many years, so uh, please feel free to say whatever you feel like. Keep the swearing to a minimum. We try to keep this a family <laughs> show. But um, let's start off with my uh, first question I ask everyone. What's your uh, first photography memory? Where, where did the uh, photography thing start from the, as far as back as you can remember anyway? Yeah, I think my, uh, my granddad actually gave me my first camera when I was six years old and a book on how to take a photograph. And I still have that book with a little message in the front of it, which is pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, through school, I kind of found that, you know, the passion to take photos and decided to do photography as part of my art through year 11 and year 12 at school. And that's where I kind of discovered the magic of the darkroom and processing film and, you know, the art of black and white. And I think that's where it really took off, you know, the, the final few years at school. And uh, I was fortunate enough to in year 11, uh, or it might have even been year 10, but we have to do compulsory work experience in Australia. And I spent a week with the Sydney Morning Herald and their sports photographers who are arguably some of the best sports photographers ever. So it was uh, a great insight into the world of media and sports photography. And I think I realised then <clears throat> that that was something I wanted to pursue and, yeah, got addicted to to capturing sport or action, if you like. 
just to make it clear for uh, some of our other listeners, year 11 and 12 is sort of like the senior years, the last two years of high school. Um, uh, and and after you finished your, uh, your studies uh, in high school, did you go on to study... Uh, uh, photography further or did you just try and get a job in, in the industry yeah so as soon as i left school you know photography was my my dream and my passion so i went straight into university and i did a bachelor of visual communication majoring in photography and imaging and that was a three-year degree and we learned everything from you know the the first sort of versions of photoshop to using max to using lights in a studio processing film again darkroom techniques uh, and then a lot of like theory to do with design and uh, visual communication, if you like. And yeah, I think that was really beneficial for me. You know, there's no right or wrong way to pursue a career in photography. But for me, you know, I, I learned a lot and made, you know, some good contacts and good friends. And then as soon as I finished, you know, that's when you realize, well, what do I do now? It's it's tough to, to find a job because, you know, not not jobs aren't advertised like they are for, say, if you want to be an accountant, there's like, only a certain number of photography jobs listed online and so I kind of went out and assisted as much as I could and I did a bit of freelance work and I was kind of doing any work I could and shortly after that I got offered a job actually as a production manager at a wedding and portrait studio. Uh, it was called Classic Colour Photography and uh, I kind of handled everything from the digital side of things there so from camera to client I kind of you know, dealt with every order and I assisted on some shoots as well. And I think from that, that was a, you know, a really good learning curve to, to learn how to drum scan and how to retouch and how to do a lot of sort of the post-production side of things. And that led me to a job opportunity at Getty Images, which was in 2002. And I basically applied for a job as a picture desk editor at Getty Images. And my skills I learned at the previous job, you know, gave me the foot in the door, if you like, to to basically, you know, handle images from photographers in the field and move them onto, you know, newspaper clients. And basically, it was like a, a version of the picture desk they have today in, you know, London and New York at Getty Images. And, you know, Sydney had a fully functioning picture desk back then, which I, you know, I worked on for several years. How, and how old were you when you got the job at Getty in 2002? Uh, I was 24. Okay. And how many years yeah. were you on the desk then before, uh, before, I mean, I, I, your, your path actually sounds fairly similar to mine apart from the studies part, but, um, you're, you've gone from the picture desk, uh, shooting, uh, to, were you shooting as well as, as, uh, as, as working, working on the desk as well? Yeah. So the way it sort of unfolded was, uh, you know, there were a handful of photographers that were shooting sport for Getty in Sydney, uh, namely Adam Pretty, who's, you know, one of the best ever, uh, Chris McGrath, Nick Lamb, and those three guys really sort of took me under their wing, and I was fortunate enough to go out, you know, on a lot of weekends in my own time and basically shoot alongside them, and they gave me tips and kind of nurtured me, and it was almost like an internship, if you like, and I spent, you know, a lot of time getting feedback from those guys and also, you know, the community in Sydney is really strong with other photographers too. So people were prepared to give me their time and feedback and, you know, it's that constructive criticism early on that sort of helped, you know, curb your, your style and how you shoot. And, uh, you know, I ended up being a sports assignments editor after the picture desk for, you know, about a year as well. So it was about a two to three year transition from working in the office at Getty Images and then, 
you know, the photographers that were based in Sydney got opportunities to move overseas and suddenly they needed to fill the void. And, you know, I was approached by a director of photography and he said, you know, what do you think about going on the road? Do you, do you want to be a star photographer at Getty Images? And, you know, I couldn't believe the, the opportunity. And, of course, I said yes, and that was in 2004. So the rest is history, yeah. There's been a lot going on since then as well, and you've sort of uh, uh, climbed the rank not only uh, in Australia but obviously internationally as well. You've been recognised, which we'll get to later on. Um, you know, you said you started in weddings. I mean, even back when you were doing the the wedding photography, that was it always sport that you wanted to be uh, involved with, or was it was that just sort of something that sort of just came along and you sort of you know maybe I should do the sport thing, or was there or was that something that you always wanted to push in the direction of? Yeah, I think at university, you know, I thought at one point I wanted to be an automotive or fashion photographer or I wanted to be in advertising. And it wasn't until I actually uh, started working at Getty and, you know, I was absorbed by, you know, the editorial world with news, sport and entertainment. And that's when I really realised how exciting, you know, live coverage can be and, you know, photographing these, you know, opportunities or moments during a match, if you like, which, you know, come and go. And if you're not on the right lens at the right time, you know, you, you miss those opportunities. You can't, you know, recreate it like you can, you know, if you're doing an ad shoot, you might spend a whole day going for one particular image. And I think, you know, most Australians uh, are sports fanatics and, you know, I grew up loving sport and playing a lot of sport. And I think that combined with my love of photography, you know, it sort of pushed me in the direction once I was at Getty to, to get out there with the guys and learn the ropes. And then from there, I've sort of never looked back. I, you know, sport's my thing I love. And, Obviously, with that comes portraiture too, and I love you know photographing portraits of mainly sports people. But yeah, it's the the live action that I really, really love chasing. Okay, and um, so let's uh, move forward. So, what what kind of what kind of things are you doing at, at the moment for Getty? What's your sort of and you know like everybody knows that listens to previous episodes that there's no such thing as a normal week in sports photography because it's obviously changing all the time. But what's the where are your usual uh, haunts? What are the kind of play? What are the places you go to on a on a fairly regular basis in uh, in Sydney? Uh, I think you know at the moment we're in the middle of our winter. It's uh, eighteen degrees Celsius and sunny, so it's not too bad. <laughs> but uh, I'm doing a fair bit of you know ball sports, so lots of you know football, soccer, football, lots of rugby union, rugby league, AFL, which is our Aussie rules football, and uh, it's a good. A good mix of sort of winter sports that's happening uh i've got to shoot some some winter athlete portraits for uh some winter olympians this week which i'm looking forward to because uh, as we know the next winter olympics in pyeongchang is uh just around the corner in february so uh, i'm doing a shoot with some speed skaters uh, later this week which i'm looking forward to and that they're going to be training as well so that should be cool are you uh are you down on the uh speed skating or are you down on the winter olympics uh, team as well yeah, yeah, I got the nod for that, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I'm handling the freestyle park with uh, another colleague of ours, David Ramos. And, uh, yeah, we're going to be doing all the freestyle events, which is at a place called Bokwang. And fortunately, this year in February, I went there and basically shot all the test events with another photographer, Clive Mason, from the London office. As uh, okay. a lot of you know, he's a bit of a superstar. And it was a great couple of weeks working with Clive. You know, he's very talented photographer and we had a great time uh eating lots of cream barbecue as well as <laughs> photographing all the all the sport that was happening but uh 
Yeah, no, it's uh, it's going to shape up and be a pretty exciting game. So, uh, like all these places, they're they're you know often small little ski resorts or small towns that get transformed into these incredible venues. And uh, I think we'll be lucky with the weather that time of year. You know, there, there were blue skies most of the time I was there, and uh, yeah, it, it's pretty exciting. When I mean, as you know, you know any Olympics is about as exciting as it gets, and I think winter sports too. You know, you're outdoors a lot of the time, or it's just you know the fact there's no advertising boards you know in the arenas as well it just makes for such clean kind of awesome pictures so i think all of us you know it's one of the highlights every four years or two years if you look at winter and summer you know going to the games getting it getting getting chosen is pretty exciting i'm i'm down for that as well actually i've been named because uh i've because of my uh location here in the netherlands i've become the default speed skating photographer <laughs> so <laughs> excellent by by pure chance of moving to the netherlands and marrying a dutch girl i've uh, shoot a lot of speed skating here because this is the number one, one of the number one sports in in holland and uh, there's a lot of big events here and uh, yeah i'll be doing my first winter olympics too so i'm looking forward to that and uh, hopefully we get a chance to catch up but i want to ask a question actually because this is something that I don't know if it's, you know, obviously I have a very small uh, sample of my, me and my family and winter sports were never that big in Melbourne. Like, I, I'm sorry if I'm offending some Australians out there and I know there are a few snowboarders and stuff, but like growing up, you know, it's, this is, I think when I was a young, young boy, you know, I, you know, this is actually before I think uh, snowboards were even, you know, became what they are now. Did you grow up with much uh, with winter sport being something uh, uh, that you watched or looked forward to, in, like Winter Olympics and stuff, or is it it's something that sort of come along as a as a Getty photographer? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I really followed any winter sport at all. But strangely, I played ice hockey for the Macquarie Bears briefly okay. <laughs> back in the mid back in the mid nineties, which is an unusual sport to uh, to play in Australia. But I kind of fell into it by going to the sort of Friday night, Saturday night, you know, skating disco parties with my mates when we were young. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we got we got pretty good on the old skates. And uh, next thing you know, we're, we were playing, you know, hockey, junior hockey for the Bears. And, uh, yeah, it was good fun. But, I mean, I've snowboarded for 20-odd 20, 20 years. And, you know, I, I, love, I love the snow. But in terms of watching winter sport, you know, it's pretty rare that that many Australians, you know, do follow because uh, – you know, our winter our winters here are pretty pretty short, and there's not a huge talent pool of uh, winter Olympians. But saying that, you know, the size of the Australian Olympic teams and the Australian, you know, Winter Institute has grown, you know, year by year. And you know, we've got some some of the world's best, uh, especially in the freestyle events now as well. Australia, you know, could be a force for uh, particular events over in uh, Pyeongchang. So it's going to be exciting, I think. We've been predicted to possibly win more medals at the freestyle park than the entire medal tally in Brazil. So that's a right. stat for you. Yeah. Okay. Jeez. And I mean, I don't know if any of our listeners are aware, but Australia won a gold medal in the short track a few years back. I don't know if you remember this, Cam. This is a yeah. bit off track, but there was a guy named Bradbury. Bradbury. It <laughs> yeah. was the, the anyone, anyone out there 
stop this podcast and listen and look up YouTube, Bradbury Gold Medal Australia. It's the greatest gold medal <laughs> in the history of the Winter Olympics. Uh, pretty much everybody falls off, falls over on the last corner and he just, he was last and just <laughs> goes over the line and claims first place in front of like, I think he was seventh or sixth in the race. And then, yeah, anyway, that was, <laughs> that was sort of my, fir- that's my first uh, Winter Olympics memory watching Bradbury win because when he came back to Australia, he was the biggest hero <laughs> ever um well the other thing you've you've got a lot more you know i don't think i've ever met an australian that played ice hockey so i I didn't know that about you (laughs) (laughs) it's not a very common thing i don't think i knew anybody in australia apart from the snow you know the occasional snowboarder or a skier that actually did something you know i get you know we don't have any and we don't have the mountains for the downhill sort of uh the big skiing or the big jump the big uh what's it called the jump the the ski jump yeah just the normal the long ski jump i mean i don't know if you've ever have you ever shot that one have you ever shot that sport by any chance well i'd never seen it in my life until i went to korea this year and i got to shoot one day of it uh, a day and night session and it was incredible to stand on the edge of this steep slope and you hear them going past you just the sound of the wind it was like (laughs) unbelievable it's to say, like I'd seen it live, uh, I'd seen it on TV once, and then um, I ended up going to France once to do. They they actually do that event in the summer as well, where they have the yeah. fake grass and yeah. they go down the ramp. And seeing these people fly 120 meters through the air, it's it's one of the most insane sporting events I'd ever been to. Just watching these well, literally kids flying through the air, so it was uh, it was unbelievable. Um, now uh, another question I like to ask. Um, is uh, do you have, you know, and I and I haven't given you any prep on this, but do you have an image, a favourite image of all time that you've taken? Like, and it doesn't have to be something that you know people recognised, or, or you know, is it just something that you know, if I say to you, what's your favourite image? What pops into your head straight away? Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to define a, a particular image. I could talk about you know a favourite personal image or a favourite Getty image if if we talk about Getty images or sports photos that I've taken uh you know I've got a top handful of pictures that I I really am proud of and one of them would be uh you know the New Zealand rugby sevens team they were performing a haka uh after winning the the Hong Kong sevens um a few years ago and if I could describe it in a podcast, basically, you can imagine these guys won the tournament and were at Hong Kong Stadium in Hong Kong and a typhoon hit after they'd been presented the trophy. So <laughs> we're all out on the pitch and next thing you know, it is the heaviest, most torrential rain I've ever seen. And these guys had the trophy. They're doing a lap of honour. The crowd's basically vanished. The photographers have all vanished. And, you know, for the few people that were left, they've taken their jerseys off and performed this haka in the rain with their shirts off and it was spine tingling and it looked amazing with all the, you know, the rain and, you know, you could barely see them and, you know, they've got their shirts off. They're all, you know, rippling, muscly dudes just, you know, doing this wall dance, if you like, you know, if anyone's witnessed a harker in real life, it's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was one of those pictures that, you know, it was such an amazing moment for me. And also, you know, it wasn't until I got back into the rooms and my cameras were fogged up and one body actually got waterlogged and pretty much died. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was one of those shots where, you know, not many people were around and I think I was the only one to get it. And then, you know, to get back to our hotel that night, we had to walk through the streets of Hong Kong, wading through water up to, you know, our thighs, holding our roller bags above our heads to keep our cameras 
you know, away oh. from the water. It was actually like flooded in the streets. So, Jeez. yeah, it was it was a pretty crazy night. I think I remember were you sort of right. In, you were right in front of them as well. It's, it's almost like they're doing it right towards you, aren't they? The hunter? yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think I could have even been lying in the grass yeah. in my waterproof gear, and the grass was kind of flooded, so I got pretty wet. I, mean, that's I think sometimes it, yeah. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think that's you know that's the nature of a sports photographer. You do whatever it takes. Often you might put yourself in a risky situation too to get you know that picture and. I think this wasn't a you know a safety concern, but you know I knew I was going to get wet and possibly damage more camera gear by being out in the rain. But you can't help yourself sometimes when those opportunities come by. No, I mean I, I actually remember and you, there was a black and white version of that image that went around, if if I'm correct, and uh, that was yeah they're right on top. Yeah, you're pretty much you can see you're sort of looking up at these impressive uh, impressive men doing the haka right at you it's uh and can i ask now one of the questions like anybody that knows uh sports photography um there's a picture that i'm going to mention which i'm going to say sort of uh, i'm going to sound like a 16 year old californian girl but you're so hot right <laughs> now because uh <laughs> you this out of all the photographers i think of i think of you know i know obviously a lot of photographers i speak photographers every day i i and if I was if someone to say to me, who's the who's the photographer that's on the the tip of everyone's lips at the moment? Cam, you're 2016. I know we're in 2017 now, and you know most of the way through it. But your 2016 was something very special. I think uh, would that be a, a fair assessment of your uh, of your last 12 months or just over? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty lucky last year with some uh, some certain images and. Uh, yeah, I guess when you put in the hard yards, you know, sometimes it pays off and, you know, we all go through these purple patches and I think you'd agree with me, you know, sometimes you're on and sometimes you're not. And uh, last year, everything just seemed to fall into place for me and I was very, uh, very lucky to get some pictures that I really like and, you know, they resonated with other people as well. And it's funny, like, you know, anyone who's creative, you you can't be creative the whole time. And I think we go through these patches where we, you know, we just we're trying to get into it and we're just struggling a bit and then next thing you know we're back into it and you know I, I could name other photographers this year who I think are on fire who are just taking incredible pictures week in week out and you just get into this rhythm of you know you can't do anything wrong and I think uh you know last year for me was uh probably a defining year in my career which was you know awesome in terms of you know building a profile and just you know getting good feedback from everyone which is awesome but uh, you know, this year I wish I could tell you I've, I've taken some incredible pictures, but uh, yeah, it's been a bit quieter this year. But I, I'm saving myself for for 2018. It's a big year next year. It's hard to follow up your first big <laughs> album, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, let's uh, let's describe. Uh, I'm 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 thinking of two images. Uh, obviously, you've got a like you said. You know, you've got many good images, and not just a few. But there's two images that stand out for me. There's um, a, a photo from the Australian Open and a photo from the Olympics, which uh, I'll let you describe if you could, um, please. Let's start with the uh, the Aussie Open. You know, squelching uh, heat, if that's the correct terminology. You know, big dark shadows, blue blue surface to work with. Like you know, picture-wise, it's quite you know quite a visual. Uh, it always produces an, a, some nice images. 
but you happened to get one of something a bit more special than uh, than than the average. What 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 was that picture that uh, you could describe for us, please? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the Australian Open last year, uh, it's the first Grand Slam of the year, and you know, everyone in tennis circles is pretty excited because it's you know a new year with new you know new athletes with you know they got new kit on and everyone's pretty pumped because it's the start of you know the calendar year and i think you know a lot of the northern hemisphere looks down at australia too we you know we're basking in this glorious sunshine while everyone's shivering in cold dark winter you know through europe and the states and yeah i think it was on about day nine i was shooting a match uh gail monfils and he was jumping around on the court a fair bit and for those of you who know monfils he like he tends to jump around a bit and, you know, on surfaces such as clay and grass, you know, he's been known to actually dive before, uh, but he's never dived on hard court, I don't think, like this. And basically he was sort of midway through the second set and I think he was basically on the ropes, if you like. He, he needed to save some pretty big points and he decided to launch when he was on the baseline to save a point to play this forehand and he literally flew like Superman through the air and I was up in a catwalk position, and as soon as it happened, I literally just went, oh, my God, did that just happen, and looked at the back of my camera. And the first thing I thought was, is it sharp? Is it in focus? Did I not crop anything out? Because it was pretty full frame too. It was on a 400mm lens, and luckily everything was there, and I tagged the pictures, and, you know, we've got these little Wi-Fi devices joined to our cameras too, WFT devices, and uh, I basically – tagged a picture and sent it through to our editors immediately and I, I sent them a text message too and said uh boys the uh the best tennis photo i've ever taken in my career is coming your way and you know they might have sent a smiley face back or you know some kind of funny comment and next thing you know they're like holy shit <laughs> did that just happen and they couldn't believe it either and i i couldn't believe it like as soon as it happened i looked down at the court as well and you know, most people are courtside and there were about 20 photographers all on the court staring up at the catwalk to see, you know, who was up there, did anyone get it? And it was one of the first times ever too for me that, you know, social media had really exploded as well. And I think, you know, social media keeps growing as a medium. And uh, I tweeted and Instagram that picture pretty quickly after it happened. And I think timing, you know, is key too to these kind of pictures if you want things to go viral. So, I kind of got it out there pretty quickly and next thing you know, it was getting tweeted and retweeted by some some big, you know, big accounts on Instagram and next thing you know, it sort of grows like the roots of a tree and just keeps growing. And Yeah, anyway, it was uh, it was one of those pictures where everything just sort of came together. Uh, I'd, I'll be honest and say that, you know, three games before, I think I was shooting on a wide-angle lens through some poles and trying some arty shadow stuff and... I think then I went to a 300 mil for a bit and then I actually saw him jumping around and I said out aloud, he's going to dive, he's going to jump. And I actually said, I sort of predicted it. And it was almost like a case of positive thinking. And, you know, before I knew it, he just did this unbelievable jump. And I think what made it unique is no one's sort of seen that before on a tennis court, especially a hard tennis court where, you know, you have this perfect shadow and, He's in this bright red shirt that's popping against the blue court. He has the dreadlocks and they made a cool shadow. You know, his muscles are all sweaty and rippling and uh, the ball's on the racket. So, yeah, if I tried to set it up, I probably couldn't do it again. And, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where, um, yeah, it's probably the best action picture I've ever taken, I'd have to say that. And, uh, 
yeah. I have to agree with you because I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, and the the, the thing is, is like to describe the frame to the listener uh, again. This is something else. If you get a chance, look up uh, Gail. Uh, Gail Monfils and uh, Spencer, and it'll come up straight away on Google. And yeah, the red shirt, like you said, it pops against the blue, and he's in half a shadow, and then with from the back of the court. But then there's the, he's got his full shadow underneath him. So it's just like you said, it's just like the it's the perfect it's the perfect action shot. And and not only were was it recognised on social media, which uh, un- unbelievably, this seems to be the most important thing to most people in the world these days, <laughs> <laughs> which which is a sad state of affairs. But um, the it also was recognised by some awards. Uh, did uh, you received a few uh, accolades at the end of the year as well for that for that picture? Yeah, yeah, it got some uh, attention, which was uh, it's always nice when you get recognised for a picture like that and. I think, you know, just as important, you get, you know, nice emails from colleagues and people that you respect, you know, saying saying positive things about pictures like that. And uh, I guess for me at the end of the year, you know, winning a couple of awards was, you know, a good feeling to to kind of, I guess, stamp a picture like that and go that, you know, you liked it, you know, your friends liked it, but then for, you know, competition judges to actually award it, I guess, is the sort of, uh, icing on the cake, if you like, and uh, yeah, it was it was definitely uh, an awesome feeling to see it, you know, up in lights at the end of the year. So, so the listeners again know that you actually got, I think, was it a second place in the World Press, which is one of the more well-known uh, awards. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was uh, it was second in World Press, which was uh, awesome because you know I've ended World Press for about fifteen years and. <laughs> You know, you don't just suddenly win an award. You got to kind of enter every year and cross your fingers and hope that something happens. And you know, I've entered every year and never, never won anything in World Press. And so this was my first one. So yeah, I was chuffed with that. But you know, I always say to people too when they talk about that picture and talk about World Press and stuff, it's like, you know, I have done 13 Australian Opens, and when you work it out, it's 26 weeks of my life on those courts, which is six months of my life and I'm not 40 yet so it works out at like four percent of my entire life I've had a lens pointed at those courts <laughs> waiting for something to happen and when you look at the stats like that it's, it's pretty crazy and you know I like you know people go oh you're so lucky oh luck's involved this and that and you know I read this quote I like and it's like luck when you know luck's when preparation meets opportunity and that's something I've sort of kept on board ever since someone said it to me and I think it's a great quote because you know, on that day, I was kind of prepared like any other day there for something amazing to happen. I think that's the beauty of sport. You almost like predict what's going to happen next. And, you know, I kind of thought he was going to jump and I'm kind of ready for it before it even happens. And if it doesn't happen, you know, who cares? But if it does, you know, you want to make sure you, you know, you're tracking him at the right time on the right shutter. You got your exposure sorted. You're happy with the color balance. And eventually it'll pay off. And, you know, after 13 Australian Opens, it, it you know, it did pay off. So, that's the way I like to look at it. Let's just quickly, um, just um, just very briefly, if you could just run over. Um, I want to ask another question about the photo, but let's let's just give the listeners a bit of a, an idea of uh, Getty Images. Um, we're obviously we staff the Aussie Open. You know, probably it's it's probably would you say one of the biggest events in terms of staff for Getty uh, on a annual basis? Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, and how many photographers would you say are there at uh, running running around the Aussie Open? Uh, Getty usually has around about, I'd say, ten editorial, maybe eleven editorial, and then we have another two working for you know sponsors and a couple others helping with like you know the actual Australian Open itself. So yeah, it's a massive team. We have about you know, between two and three editors, card runners. Uh, so, yeah, th- there's a big team involved. And, you know, we're lucky in Australia we do get, uh, you know, more more accreditation passes as well, which, you know, I know with Wimbledon they're really strict with the number of passes they, they allow. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is a huge team. And, you know, we go back to the Monfils picture again. You know, Quinn Rooney, one of my colleagues who's a brilliant photographer, he was on court with me that day. And, you know, we talk about luck again. Basically, we got – a friend of ours, he was actually one of the junior guys who was sort of learning the ropes. We got him to flip a coin for us to decide who went in the catwalk for the first two sets <laughs> and who went on the court. So we like to call it the coin of destiny. And he flicked it and I won the toss and I didn't even get to choose where I went. It's up to him to choose if it's heads, does Cameron go courtside or catwalk? And, you know, he said heads, Cameron, catwalk, and it was. So I was up there, you know, it could have been Quinn up there. So it just shows you how, you know, luck does play its part but you know we like to do things fair and you know in a team environment as you know we you know we all work together and you know one day it's my turn to to be up in lights and the next day someone else will get something awesome so yeah i think that's the exciting thing to seeing awesome pictures it doesn't matter who takes it but i think we all we all love to share the experience you know and see great pictures get captured anyway well, and, and just another thing you mentioned before, this WFT. Um, this is, a for the listeners out there, there's a little attachment that we plug into our uh, Canon or cameras. Um, I'm not sure what it's called on the Nikon one, but anyway, there's a little adapter and it's connected to the Wi-Fi or, uh, you know, or your phone or whatever. And pretty much as you shoot the pictures, uh, you select the picture you want and then you press set or tag the picture and then that'll uh, send that image to... An FTP where our, the editors will pick it up and send it, and that's pretty much how uh, we've. I've mentioned this before at the World Cup. We're connected directly with a Ethernet cable, but there is also also a Wi-Fi uh, connection as well. So that's how he quickly, how quickly, how Cam moved the picture so quickly. And then, can I ask as well, how, when you're up the top, the obviously we're not the only photographers. When I say we, Getty. And not the only photographer. You weren't the only photographer up there. There was uh, other photographers. How many were up there on the on the catwalk when you were up there uh, for that picture? Do you remember? Yeah, for, yeah. From memory, I think there were eight photographers in the roof uh, with okay. the catwalk. They're pretty strict as to where you go in terms of access, and you know this was actually on Margaret Court, so it wasn't Centre Court. It was you know Margaret Court, which is okay. one of the newer newer stadiums that's just been refurbished and. You know, it's a great angle from up in the catwalk there. But basically, you're only allowed on one baseline. So you're basically looking straight down on the player below you or you look at the far end of the court. And then you're also allowed up uh, the opposite side to the umpire's chair, probably halfway to the net. So, you know, to the service line is about as far down the court as you can go. But I think with tennis, you know, unlike a lot of other sports, as a photographer, you have to make a decision firstly which player are you going to point your lens at? You know, with a lot of sport, you're always pointing at the action, whereas tennis, you already have to make a decision. Am I going on the player serving or the player receiving? And am I going to stick on that player or am I going to try and swap? And you, you literally have to commit to one end of the court and hope that you're at the right end. But usually you can sort of sense when, you know, big moments are brewing in a, in a tennis match, if you like, especially when it comes to 
emotion, you know, jubilation and dejection. You you try and pick, you know, which end of the court to go to. But often if one player is wiping the other player off the court too, you might just focus on, you know, the winner for the majority of the match. But, yeah, that's that's something that's always in your mind. You're sort of thinking about what's going to happen next, who's going to do this, is someone going to break a serve here or is there going to be a break point, are they going to celebrate and go off, you know. And it, it's it's pretty frustrating when you've got the lens pointed at one player and you hear this almighty scream from the other end of the court <laughs> and you look down there and by the time you swivel around, you, you're about a second too late. But, yeah, it's trying to minimise those mistakes, but they do happen to all of us. Well, like you said, you've been there, you know, literally months of experience of working those courts. So you've, uh, I'd say you're uh, one of our more experienced uh, tennis photographers then, uh, you know, maybe not in the Clive Brunskill range, but uh, definitely up there with, uh, with, the, with the best of them because not many photographers get that much time on the courts, um, especially at a big event like this one. And were there other photographers that got, um, I know, not the same, but a similar image? Uh, was there any other photographers that you know got an, a, a picture? Was there any photographers standing next to you at the time that got a, a similar picture? Yeah, so I think I mentioned there were eight photographers in the roof. Yeah. And from my understanding, I think there are three versions of him jumping. And okay. I've seen one other version, but I'm aware of two other versions. And the other version I have seen was uh, Jason O'Brien, who was shooting for Reuters. And yep. his, his picture is quite similar. Uh, there's there's some little differences that you can, you know, if you really want to analyze the pictures, you can look at the ball placement and the shadows and, you know, where his feet are and his arms are in terms of his position on the court. Because even though we're shooting really fast, you know, one thousandth of a second, you know, a fair bit happens in a thousandth of a second. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to to compare the two pictures, that's for sure. And I know that uh, he was recognised uh, with a sequence he entered in, I think, the Sony World Photography Awards. So, okay. you know, it's great great to see him, him be rewarded for, uh, you know, his time and effort as well. He's like a great photographer who's done a fair bit of tennis around the world. Well, this uh, I'm not very good at segues, especially on this, but that, that gives me a perfect segue because there's another picture, um, the second picture which uh, I'm gonna th- I'm thinking of today, uh, <laughs> um, which is another another massive feather on your cap for uh, 2016, and there's another well another version of that picture as well. And can you describe your uh, your let's let's just say it straight out iconic image? You you have an iconic well two <laughs> iconic images, but you have an iconic image in your bag which. Not many sports photographers worldwide can actually claim to. Can you describe your uh, iconic Rio 2016 image for us, please? And I'm sure the listeners will, if they know anything about sports photography and they're interested in this uh, in this field, then they uh, definitely will know this picture. Yeah, so, uh, you know, 2016, obviously, the Summer Olympics happened in Brazil. And I think at the Olympics, there's always some, you know, superstar athletes that attend and some Blue Ribbon events that, you know, people... A, want to get there and watch, but B, tune in around the world. You know, billions of people tune in to watch certain events happen at the Olympics. And I think, you know, if you are to talk about two athletes, if you like, that are the rock stars of the Games, you know, it would be Michael Phelps and Usain Bolt. And for me, you know, I specialise in track and field and I've done a a fair bit of it over the years. Uh, I'm no good at shooting swimming really, but we have a dedicated team of guys who do a brilliant job with that. But, yeah, my picture of Usain Bolt uh, in the semifinals of the 100 metres was the picture that uh, um, basically trended and (laughs) exploded, (laughs) if you like. And it's a funny story how it came about because 
you know, I've, I've followed Usain Bolt for many years now and I've been lucky enough to shoot him at all three Olympics he's been at. So uh, Beijing, uh, London and then Brazil. And I've also done the Com Games, photographing him at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow and also two world championships in Beijing and Moscow. And so, you know, you get to you get to photograph these guys a lot. You get to know how they run, how they pose, how they hammer it up. And for those who, who love Usain Bolt, you know, he's such a awesome character and such a superstar of the track. And I think he transcends, you know, different countries and different sports. He's, you know, just a sports star. It doesn't matter if you're into athletics or not, you know, everyone knows who he is. And I think because what he's achieved on the track over the years, you know, no one's ever done before. And not only is the the fastest man in the world in history, but he's also, you know, no one's ever won, you know, nine medals, three Olympics back to back. So he won, you know, the 100, 200 relay, uh, sorry, the 100 meters, the 200 meters, and the relay four by 100 at all three Olympics. And unfortunately, you know, one of those medals was uh, ended up being disqualified because I think one of his teammates may have tested positive for a banned substance, but. Uh, Still, you can't really take anything away from the saying, you know, no one's come close to him. I don't think he's lost the race. Uh, I think someone said he hasn't lost a race in maybe 11 or 12 years. And the only time he has, he disqualified himself once with a false start. So he's unbeatable, basically. And he's such a showman and such an entertainer. And if we go back to that night at the, the Rio Olympics, I was in field that night, which meant I was responsible to cover the field events that were happening at the track that night. And we usually have two photographers from Getty Images that are based in field and our responsibility is the field event. So I think that night I was doing high jump and a couple of other things. But when you get the opportunity to shoot a little bit of track, you do that as well. And if there's any finals, you know, your job is to shoot the finish line from infield and then also do the runaround with, you know, the athlete once they cross the line. And that's always a lot of fun too because you get to run around and avoid tripping over objects and embarrassing yourself in front of the world. But with the same, basically, I was shooting high jump and I knew he was in the second semifinal for the 100. So I kind of kept an eye on the time and I think I ha- had it highlighted on my little uh, schedule of events that was, you know, gaffer taped to my pass and, you know, when he came out on the field, sorry, when he came out on the track, you know, you hear the crowd basically erupt because, you know, he is a rock star. And so I sort of left the left the high jump because it was only qualifications and I decided that I would go down to around the 70-meter mark and attempt uh, a pan shot of him as he ran past. And, you know, I've done that before at a few different, you know, events that I photographed him, including the London Olympics where I panned him from the outside of the track and you know when your pans for those of you who, who you know pan photos you got to choose a shutter speed to start with and i think the slower you go obviously the harder it is and the slower you go the better it looks too so you need to make a decision as to what shutter you you choose and often the pictures will be you know soft sharp soft sharp sharp soft and it just depends if they're you know the athlete's head is at the exact you know speed that you're moving your camera to you know you manage to get it razor sharp but a lot of the time you don't and in London, for example, I remember the 100 I kind of was panning and a lot of it was soft and then there were a couple of sharp ones and then the best picture of all, the big orbital camera that runs down the rail <laughs> totally blocked the same bolt <laughs> and he's like hidden by this camera and I couldn't believe it and I was like, I'll just stuff that picture up. But, you know, that's the beauty of working in a team. You have that many angles and that many cameras set up that, you know, there's going to be different different versions of it. But, yeah, at the semi-final I decided to do a pan and – Next thing you know, the uh, 
you know, the gun went off as a false start. I'm like, oh, no, what if that's Bolt? So I've literally sprinted to the start line just in case it was a saying because it would be such a huge story. And luckily it wasn't him. But then I had to run back to that 70-meter mark where I decided he'd be, you know, out in front of the other competitors and it would be a nice shot to get him clean. And, you know, I got back there, but next thing you know, my heart's racing and, you know, I'm not shaking, but, you know, the adrenaline's going. And you have to kind of calm down and, you know, chill out if you're going to pan because it's all about, you know, the nice smooth motion of your your camera. And uh, anyway, I held my breath, gun went off, he came flying out of the blocks and he actually said it's one of the best starts he's ever had. And uh, by the time he got to around the mark I was at on the field, he literally looked inside and smiled at my camera and I couldn't believe it. And next thing you know, he crosses a line. I didn't even see him smile, you know, through my camera. It wasn't until I quickly looked at the back of the camera to again check if, you know, the panning shots were sharp, whether or not, you know, I got anything. And next thing you know, he's got this big grin looking at the camera. And uh, I shot at a 40th of a second that night, which is pretty slow. And, you know, depending on, you know, who's running and, you know, what event it is, you kind of make a decision what, what speed to shoot at. You know, if you could, if you shoot at a 60th, you know, it's probably a bit safer. You got more chance of getting more frames sharp, but you also end up with a, yeah, 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 that's right. The background yeah, stays you, in focus too much. Yeah. So, yeah, much you, detail you, kept anyway. you're exactly right. And, you know, the slower, the harder, but then the better it looks. So I decided to go a 40th and I kind of thought we have a bunch of cameras pointing on this race. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You know, later that night I had to sort of stay focused because I was on the inside for the, you know, the 100 final two and I had to shoot him crossing the line. I had to get him coming down the straight. I had to get all my remotes firing. And then as well as that, as soon as he crossed the line, you had to chase him and be the first photographer there and do the lap of honour with him and make sure you get all that stuff. So there was plenty of pressure. But, yeah, as soon as I saw this smile, I – I literally sprinted as fast as I could to my laptop that was located at the finish line and I dumped the card and next thing you know, I'm back at the high jump and I'm just busy working away and, you know, in the back of my head, you know, I still had the 100 metres final that night and, you know, every photographer's pretty stressed out and nervous, you know, when it comes to huge events like that and I know at the track for that race there were 800 photographers and Getty Images had, I think, a team of about from memory, I think it was about 11 photographers. And then we had in total 25 cameras set up, I think. So including, you know, our handheld cameras and all our remotes. And, you know, remotes I was firing. In the roof from yeah, remotes in the uh, roof everywhere. Remotes in the roof from Richard Heathcote, former guest. Yeah. Anyone go back and find that one? That was interesting. And then, yeah, obviously head on, side on, every corner of the yeah. track. Um, you know, obviously infield that you were there. And, you know, like you said, remotes. At the at the bottom of the finish line, where the where the line is, uh, remotes head on, remotes side on. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's a monster. And like you said, I didn't realize there was that many photographers there, but it's if <laughs> if you ever just look, most I think this is the thing as well. Most photographers, when we you know we shoot an event, uh, you know, if you see an event on TV, everyone's always watching the sport. I think most photographers they're always just looking where the other photographers <laughs> are sitting. Yeah. So when you see that on TV, you, I'm, everyone's watching Bolt across the finish line. I'm looking at all the photographers. Where are, where are they? Who's running up? And you'll see, and you're, you're one of the photographers as well after he crosses the finish line to go up and get him sort of with the fans in the background and in the flag and all that kind of thing, weren't you? Were you, you're, you when you said that's that's the runaround. As, as yeah, yeah. Before. Yeah, so, you know, your job is to basically chase him and 
whilst you want to kind of Chase get him reacting. In the world. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then also avoid broadcast. You know, they don't like you getting in the way either. So you have to kind of be respectful to the the broadcast TV cameras that are there. And also they only let four photographers do this lap of honor. So it's, you know, a privilege to be asked to do it. And uh, yeah, we all sort of work closely together and you want to make sure you're out of each other's way and we play nice. And I think because we, you know, we trust each other, we, we all get great pictures and, you know, obviously you, you all want to get the best for your agency or whatever. But yeah, I think there's that kind of level of respect, almost like brothers in arms in the trenches. You kind of, you know, keep an eye on each other and make sure that you're all, you know, working together to help each other to get the greatest, you know, the greatest pictures you can. But uh, I think, you know, another interesting point on that was, you know, the speed of, you know, the editing team and the the hard wires and stuff. And the fact we got a picture of Bolt crossing the line, it was on news desks globally within 59 seconds. So that was, you know, a record for us. And it's a pretty amazing stat to think it's gone from camera down, you know, fiber optic cable to a bunch of editors who've captioned it, cropped it, photoshopped it, and FTP to out to feeds, you know, globally. And, you know, next thing you know, it's on desks around the world within a minute. I, I think that's the thing that a lot of, and this is the, you know, again, so I've mentioned on the podcast many times before about the technology, you know, again, you've shot the picture. Our IT guys have set up cables and this is not just like set up on the day. This is this has been a, a one or two years in advance of making sure that, you know, the cables are set up and then the, you know, you've plugged in, that's gone to our, uh, the editing desk, which was in Rio at the time at the, in the media, in the big uh, media facility there. And these guys have sent it out. And not only that, which is the other part, which we'll get to in a second, the explosion um, was, you know, the editors have all done that. And then our, we had a social media team, um, which I think most, most of them are based in New York, who said, okay, we've got a, this is a belter. We've we've got a classic image here. Let's put this out, and they've put it out across the across the you know Getty images, social media feeds, and everything like that. And that's where you pretty much uh, became uh, almost a, <laughs> a a mini celebrity in your own right with this uh, picture. Because I'm guessing you're uh, you got a lot of fo- new followers after that as well. Would that be uh, fair to say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was a crazy night, and obviously, you know, we all have to stay focused on. Like I said, the you know the final for the hundred meters was later that night, and in between the semi final and the final, you know, that's when my phone started basically vibrating and going off the hook and I couldn't sit there looking at my phone because I had a job to do right so it wasn't till after Bolt's final and the run around and everything I'm literally sitting there sweaty exhausted that I start looking at my phone and I realized what had happened and you know that's when you know that picture I hadn't even you know realized how much it had literally gone to all these news sites and they'd run headline stories on it you know BBC, NBC, Sports Centre, Sports like Tonight, all the papers back in Australia, uh, and then next thing you know, news channels are talking about it too. And BBC, you know, London wanted to interview me, and NPR. It literally went bananas for 24 hours, and I did a ton of media, and I couldn't believe it actually happened. And the fact that I guess I was lucky enough to be the guy that was there when you know the greatest runner in history basically smiled gave you a big smile yeah mid mid race (laughs) and i think people kind of knew that you know he's coming to the end of his career and there were suggestions it was going to be his last olympics and he was literally just having the time of his life enjoying being the entertainer that he is and he makes it look so easy but you know he he said in his documentary he goes 
you know, I put in the hard yards, I train my ass off, you know, and it's when I get to the track, that's when I have fun and that's when I, when I'm competing is when I enjoy myself. And I think the photo kind of summed up his, you know, his charisma and his character, you know, in this single frame and he had that powerful kind of stride and he's looking across and like everyone else is there, you know, with such determination on their faces and he's just in front coasting, looking around, having a smile. And in his documentary too, he actually says he saw the cameras and he's, you know, looked across and given the big smile. And at first I thought he was looking at DeGrasse, who was, you know, the Canadian athlete on his inside saying, Hey, Hey buddy, slow down a bit. But he, he actually says he, he was looking at the cameras and, you know, when they get to that 70, 80 <laughs> meter mark, yeah, no, they literally turn the gas off too. Cause he needs to save a little bit of energy for the final. So it's almost like a, unwritten rule where if you're so far in front in the semi you know everyone kind of turns the jets off for the last 10 20 meters and it was like Degrassi was coming home hard and he's looked across but yeah as it turned out he was smiling at the camera and yeah it was uh, a whirlwind experience after that and it was hard to sort of get through the rest of the olympics if you like because i was doing a ton of a ton of stuff and uh, yeah, it was it was yeah, certainly a wild hard run. And you're working hard, and you've still got all your uh, yeah. You've got uh, I know that um, again throughout through the Getty office. You know, we obviously have a team of you know there was a massive team of well over a hundred people involved. You know, obviously not just photographers at the Olympics. So you know, sponsors team and and editors and the signing editors and and uh, so many people involved. And and you were involved in a lot of uh, we had a lot of TV crews. You know, because obviously we're the official uh, Olympic photographers. Um, the official IOC uh, photographers. So you had a lot of commitments popped up after that uh, that image as well. And I, I want to finish it off just a little bit with um, your wife, obviously, and your wife, without you knowing, did something very special for you as well after that as well. Is that uh, am I? Can we? Can you just yeah, of course. Description of what happened there because I think that was very special. That made yeah. It, that just sort of, again, another another icing on the cake uh, story for you on that one. You, uh, yeah, so it, it, it kept it kept going and going that you know the whole bolt thing, and I think I was lucky enough a to meet my wife at Getty Ministry Works uh, at Getty as well as a director of editorial based in uh, Australia. And uh, anyway, she was at the games. She was working for Getty, uh, handling some some major sponsors and. Basically, she organised some big prints of that photograph, and she spoke to the, uh, you know, the venue photographic manager out at the track, and also the mix zone manager, and they arranged uh, basically for me to be in there after he finished his four by one hundred relay, because that was his last event at the games. And yeah, I was lucky enough uh, to meet him, and I basically presented him a print, and I signed it for him, and then I said. You know, saying, would you be able to sign one for me? And he signed one for me. And we had a chat about the picture and had a chat about uh, basically the Olympics and him. And I just said it was, you know, a privilege and an honour to basically witness your greatness and photograph you over all these years. And, uh, yeah, here's, here's a picture for you. And next thing you know, uh, we had one of our colleagues, Sean Bottrell, who was, you know, working with me at the track as well. He kindly hung around and he photographed the whole event and the meeting. And, yeah, we basically got some pictures together and finally, I've got that image framed on my wall of uh, of him that he signed for me. And I'm yet to put it up, but it will eventually hang somewhere in the, a little study or a, the pool room, if you like, as a reminder of, uh, yeah, one of the greatest experiences I've had, you know, working as a sports photographer. 
Wow, fantastic, man. That's a uh, and and you were recognised as well for that image later on in the year as well. Is that uh, fair to say? Yeah, yeah. That award, uh, sorry, that image uh, came up in a few awards, uh, which was which was awesome. It, it won. It was part of my Walkley set in Australia, which is sort of the media photographic awards in Australia, and I think it won uh, best photograph from the Olympics in the NPPAs and. Yeah, a couple of other small gongs, but uh, yeah, it's always great to to get that recognition on a picture that you know I guess means so much. But it's funny at the time, you know, I never thought twice before it happened that this picture I was about to take was gonna you know make waves like it did. And I think that's the the beauty of what we do. You know, you don't know when that next big moment's gonna come, or you know, surely there'll be something this year or next year which you know supersedes it. It's just the excitement of sport and. I think you know when you when you photograph someone as as you know with as big a profile as him doing what he does you know so well I think it all sort of came together that night and yeah I guess it's a reminder of why we love what we do right yeah 100% and I think it's um you know there's not many athletes you know in my lifetime you know I think of players like uh, you know like a Michael Jordan or a, you know, Zinedine Zidane, uh, these players that just sort of, or, you know, Ronaldo, Messi, whatever, you know, or, you know, uh, you know, the Federers of this world. Yeah, greatest of all time. These guys, the greatest of all time, you know, these, these guys are, so if you get to photograph them, obviously it's a, it's an honor, it's a privilege, it's, it's fantastic to see the best of what humanity has to offer, but then to get something like you did is even more special. And then, you know, like I said, to cap it all off, I think, you know, the meeting and, uh, you know, what your lovely wife had done for you and all that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, it's, again, that's why I think, you know, what a, what a 2016. <laughs> uh, I, I, that's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on because I just think I couldn't think of anyone else that had had, has had a better, you know, 12, 18 months than you have. Um, yeah, fantastic, man. Well, thanks, mate. Um, I appreciate that. Well, you know, I'm I'm not saying anything that everyone because I mean that picture. To go back to the photo though, there was, you know, we I spoke you spoke we mentioned uh, Jason O'Brien who I know fairly well because he was living in the UK when I was there, Queenslander. Hello, Jason, if you're listening. Yes. Um, hello to Jason. That's another comment from another podcast I listened to, but I'll leave it at that. Um, and there's um, there was another photographer standing next to you again at. Uh, in Rio, in the infield, you've done this picture. Usain Bolt, big smile, and there you mentioned there was a couple other photographers next to you. And did they? I know one of them did for sure. But were there other photographers that got a similar image, or were they were they doing the same? You know, slow shutter, or how? How? What was the? What from what you found out later? Obviously not at the at the time. Were, was there other images fly, flying around similar to what you had? Yeah, so I think there were only about four or five photographers that were infield, you know, shooting that part of the that part of the track and that part of the race that night. And you know, you don't know what other people are doing with their camera settings. I don't know if people are panning or shooting, you know, normal shots. You can kind of look at them and how they hold the camera and stuff, and you can kind of guess what they're doing. But uh, there was one other photographer, Kai Faffenbach, who was uh, sitting, oh sorry, standing reasonably close to me. Uh, a Reuters photographer who is a friend of mine and a great photographer. And, yeah, it was pretty funny because he ran to the start line when I ran to the start line and, you know, we both ended up, you know, in a similar spot on the track. And whilst we didn't really talk about camera settings or anything, you know, 
I think we were both aware that we were going to be doing pans of this race. And it was funny because I got to share that moment with Kai and it's something we'll remember forever. And it was like as soon as, you know, Bolt crossed that line, you know, we looked at the back of each other's cameras and we couldn't believe it because we both reacted at the same time like, oh, my God, he's smiling. We, he's smiling at us. It's like you, you couldn't you couldn't like script it, right? So we were literally hitting each other going, this just happened. And that's when I bolted off to dump my cards. So, yeah, Kai's version is uh, is similar again. Um, it's funny when, you you know, you talk about 800 photographers at the track, there's always going to be pictures that are similar from different races and different field events. And on this occasion, you know, Kai had a shot that was, uh, you know, similar to mine. And the funny thing was that, you know, obviously, you know, did the rounds on social as well. And, you know, people were, you know, naming his picture as my picture and my picture as his picture. And then the meme started. And next thing you know, you know, Ellen and all these, you know, world yeah, famous people, <laughs> they're like got memes of Bolt as well. And, you know, he was, he was loving it as well. It was, it was hilarious watching it all unfold. So, yeah, when you have a picture that becomes a meme, it, it, it certainly makes you proud. <laughs> <laughs> as it should. And, uh, I, I wonder, I mean, I, I don't know who the other photographers were on the infield, but I, I, I'd i like to ask them a question. What, what, what do you think when you get, like you've got guys sitting next to you, I mean, it's probably a bit harsh, but, you know, you've got guys sitting next to you who get a picture or the picture of the day, tournament, year, whatever you want to call it, and then they don't have anything at yeah. race yeah i mean that must have been a very uh difficult uh thing you know especially especially the way this picture just actually you know like you said it was you know ellen is you know is an american talk show and you know she she put it on uh, you know on her was that was that and that was your version or was that kai's one do you, do you no, know no that was my one out? yeah that was my one <laughs> And uh, I, the Getty, you know, we Getty, we have a, obviously, you know, like all companies, we have internal emails, and there was a few emails flying around with uh, you being interviewed on TV shows in uh, in Australia. Uh, can you just give me a? I've never, I don't think I've ever had, had any photographers on here who have been interviewed <laughs> because of their photos on national TV. But uh, what what was? Uh, how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, next thing you know, once it sort of unfolded that night, you know, every TV crew for all the news channels in Australia, I think they wanted to run with the story because, you know, it's an Australian photographer at the big Olympics. Whoa, you know, and here he is, he's got this picture. And, you know, it was pretty cool to, to have a chat to people back home. The funny thing was I talked to, you know, a handful of radio, you know, disc jockey radio sort of interviewers too, and some of them are a bit controversial and they were like asking controversial questions. And then, you know, you have the other ones that maybe aren't, they just want to hear the facts, but yeah, it was fun. I, you know, I haven't done that much media ever and, you know, especially in this, such a short space of time, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was certainly a roller coaster of, uh, storytelling. Weren't you on morning TV <laughs> when you got back? Yeah, I did some, that? I did some morning television as well, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, had to, resident, had to, is, that a, is that has that become a regular thing now? Are you the resident uh, sports photographer advisor, no. or is that was that just a one-off? No, everyone's forgotten about me now. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there there was certainly uh, a few things going on at the uh, the end of last year. But yeah, no, it was uh, it was definitely an exciting period in uh, in my career, and I'm not going to deny that I didn't enjoy the experience. 
But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You know, I, I don't want to get complacent now and it's like I'm hungry to get more pictures and I think that's what drives us, you know. The hard work we all put in, you know, the result and the reward is, you know, awesome photographs. And I think when you, you know, you have a quiet patch, it just sort of uh, makes you more more hungry to go out there and, and you know, get get some new cracking frames if you like and you know i've got a few events in the pipeline coming up where i'm i'm sort of excited about shooting some different stuff and you know i've gone out and got my drone license this year as well so it that'll enable me to fly you know above certain not stadiums or arenas but i'll be able to fly over certain events that are outdoors such as you know ocean swims triathlons and surfing and things like that and go for some different pictures that i don't think anyone's really done you know from a sort of sports photography angle i know people are out there shooting pretty general views and you know beach scenes and stuff but you know i've got some ideas in mind to play with shadows and you know try some some things that people haven't seen so hopefully we'll get get some pictures from the the little drone later this year well that's i mean i was actually going to ask you know what's what's coming up that's exciting you but that's uh, something different i know that uh, in the uk um, and obviously in the States, there's, uh, drones have become very, very regulated because of, um, uh, I think I think it's come down to what happened just briefly. There was uh, some fires in LA a few months, years ago or something, and uh, a lot of people took their drones up and they couldn't actually fly the helicopter and planes through that with to dump water on the fire because the drones were in the way. It was too dangerous. So there's a lot of regulations. I don't know how it is. Is it very strict in Australia with the with the drone photography at the moment, or is that something that's um, still sort of a bit more unregulated? Yeah, it's definitely getting stricter. I'd say by the month, and you know, in Australia, you have the CASA, which is the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, and they're in charge of everything drone related. But they like to call it uh, unmanned aerial vehicles now, rather than a drone, because you know, a drone, drone sounds like drone sounds like yeah, military. Yeah, and, and also, yeah. you know, a drone's something that, you know, operates itself, whereas I'm the pilot, I'm in charge of the unmanned aerial vehicle, but I'm just flying it from a different location, right? So I'm not inside it. And I think that's what the terminology they want to start using now, it's all about UAV rather than drone. But drone's the buzzword that, you know, does the the rounds on the news. But yeah, it's really strict here. Basically, you know, a lot of the airspace is restricted. There's certain rules as to how far you can fly or how close you can be to, to people, how you can and can't fly over populous areas, how you're not allowed, you know, in a lot of restricted airspace, there's ceilings as well. You're not allowed over a certain height, you know, you can't go over 120 metres in Australia at all and you can't fly at night. It has to be line of sight. So I can't fly like, you know, over a stadium where I can't see the, the aircraft anymore. It's, it's really strict. And then with a lot of airspace too, you need to notify you know, the authorities, so CASA, and let them know what you're doing. You have to do a risk assessment. You have to do, you know, a flight plan. You have to submit that, and then you have to be basically switched on and concentrate on what you're doing and, you know, be a responsible pilot. Uh, but you take all that on board. Well, there was another story, wasn't there, where an Aussie was – I think I'm sure it was in Australia. was a triathlon or something where uh, it actually crushed into one of the athletes. Is that – Yeah, am I, yeah, am I, that has happened. That was in Australia, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And another drone also, a guy flew it from his spa in his backyard and he flew it to the local hardware store where they had a sausage sizzle barbecue and he he ordered a sausage sandwich with his drone with a little note and they put it in his drone <laughs> and he flew it back to his spa in the backyard. 
And uh, he got in big trouble for that because he flew over like a major highway and he broke oh a lot of rules. God. But, yeah, that's the kind of funny stuff that, you know, people have done in <laughs> Australia. But it is it is pretty serious stuff. You know, things can go wrong and, you know, I guess that's the responsibility you have. And now that I'm licensed, that's even, you know, stricter. I have to be, you know, really responsible with it. But there will definitely be opportunities. You know, it will never take over you know, photography as you know it, but it's a great way to supplement, you know, your coverage and I guess your skill set. So that was something I wanted to sort of immerse myself in this year and, you know, I'm, I'm on my way to to doing some new things with the drone. So, yeah, it should be exciting. And I, I didn't know that uh, – is, is there other photographers in the Oz that are doing this or is this something that you've, uh, you know, gone into like courses with with other photographers from other agencies or colleagues from Getty or is this just uh, – all on your own, uh, all off your own. Um... Yeah, I mean, I've, I've basically been flying drones for four or five years now, but the, the the big thing in Australia, and I think it's probably similar around the world, is you're not allowed to use a you know UAV or a drone commercially without a license. So whilst I can go yeah. and take pretty pictures, I can't actually you know post them on the Getty website or send them down feeds to clients. Whereas now that I'm licensed. You know, Getty has a global, you know, drone policy now and, you know, we have the proper public liability and everything's documented and that means I will be able to use it depending on the location and what event it is. You know, we're going to be uh, using it up at the Commonwealth Games next year in the Gold Coast on occasion and, you know, the airspace up there is really strict. There's a lot of runways and a lot of helipads and a lot of basically movement in the air above some of the venues. So whether or not we can use it, you know, as much as we'd like to, I don't think we will be given all the opportunities that we've requested, but there will be, you know, time and place to, to use it. And, yeah, it'll just be cool to get, you know, different angles on certain things that we haven't really seen. And, you know, it's a easier, I guess, way than, you know, forking out for a helicopter every time you want to take a picture as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, I mean, that's, um, yeah, I, I know that, uh, you know, there are guys in the UK, I think Clive Rose is one of those guys as well, that's uh, sort of big on the, I'm going to say use the word drone again, but drone photography, and I know a couple of guys in the States, and yeah, but the same, I think, the way I understand it, and I read a lot of uh, Australian, UK, and American news about these kind of things, and it seems to be sort of, they seem to be following in suit, they seem to be watching what each other um, country is doing in terms of regulation because it seems to be sort of, and, and I'm, I say this because I'm you know, English speaking, so I in, read the English news and uh, they seem to be sort of doing the same things in every country. It seems to be sort of a, becoming a universal sort of um, regulation, regulations uh, seem to be going through each one. So yeah, what kind of events? I know you mentioned the triathlon and stuff and obviously this is, you'll be flying this over sections of the track where there, were, there will be no athletes and no spectators watching is that am i right in saying that with you know the positioning of your aircraft you you kind of if you could imagine a cone shaped zone below the you know the drone if something was yeah. to go wrong and this is where you you do your kind of risk assessment uh you know is there a risk of someone being injured or damaged to property if the drone was to fail in the position it's in right when it failed you know what i mean so you actually aren't allowed to fly directly overhead any populous area. And that can be one person, you know, if the drone's going to fall out of the sky and land on someone, it's going to injure them. So that's technically popular. So it's a, it's about finding that kind of area in the sky where, say, for 
you know, the road race with the cycling, you know, I could be over the beach where there's no one in a particular part of the beach, but below me to one side is, you know, cyclists racing up and down the road and, you know, I can shoot it from an angle provided I'm, you know, 30 metres away in a certain distance where if there was, you know, a failure uh, and it was to crash, you know, it's still not going to land on anyone if you like. But, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty strict and, you know, I think there'll be definitely ceilings where you're only allowed to fly for like four, up to 45 metres height as well from a lot of these uh you know venues and then you also have to be 30 meters away from people always you know you can get permission to fly uh 15 meters from someone but you need like basically assigned authority from that person saying yes you can fly your aircraft 15 meters from me and i'm not going to go and get signatures from a triathlon race from every athlete am i before a race happens so that rules that out straight away you know if you're photographing one surfer on location in tahiti and you're the only one there and he knows you and you're there working together you know maybe you can fly a bit closer but you know the rules are 30 meters and yeah i mean it's all so new to everyone too but the other amazing thing is dji who's the biggest drone supplier in the world that make the phantom and the mavic and the spark and all the drones you sort of see everywhere they're now basically listening to all the authorities around the world and they're actually going to program the gps in your drone so that it will not actually even fly or take off in restricted areas. So, for example, wow. Sydney Harbour is so iconic, right? You're not allowed to fly a drone anywhere in Sydney Harbour unless you have permission from CASA. And they'll be able to sell a drone now. If you buy it out of the box, it won't even take off or fly into that zone because it's mapped in GPS and DJI know that you're not allowed to be there. But now that I'm licensed and I have an operator certificate, I can then apply to dji to get a code to unlock my drone to fly in that space provided i have permission from casa so yeah it's going to get a lot stricter and i'm sure in a lot of the you know the united states where it's really strict already you know these these drones will be blocked from flying you know the majority of national parks and any major developed you know city throughout the states that's cool man yeah yeah it's exciting that's what i mean so you know a photographer at the top of his game still pushing the boundaries of what uh, what what you can get out of a an event what uh, just a couple sort of standard questions again you know i know you have i think i think we met the com games or the world swimming champs the first time yeah, yeah. In, uh, 2005 i think it was and uh, i think you called me a passwerer because <laughs> i had my uh, accreditation yeah. my accreditation on after i left the venue so you're just pointing at me laughing at me calling <laughs> me the password but <laughs> i'm sorry man what um no it's all right man i forgive you now. i think 12 years later i forgive you <laughs> i think we also um, worked what... together in 07 for a few weeks over in france at the rugby world cup that was exactly. a, that was yeah, good times yeah, I mean that was yeah. You were following the Aussie team at the time, weren't you? That's right. Yeah, the Wallabies and Landy. Yeah, Land, yeah. He was the with the Kiwi legend, the All Blacks. The Kiwis. Yeah, All Blacks. Um, what's uh, what's your favourite sport to shoot? I mean, again, I'm just going to ask you a standard. It's a very standard question, but what's your what's your favourite? What do you like shooting the most? Uh, I'd have to say I I do love shooting tennis. I think you know we're so lucky here in Australia with the you know the Grand Slam and the light that we have. And, you know, the access we have to, you know, it's such an exciting event to, to shoot, you know, year in, year out. And it makes such great pictures and it's coming up with something new that's the challenge. And, you know, playing with light down there is so exciting in Melbourne because it's the middle of summer and it's so harsh. But, yeah, I love the tennis. You know, every year I, I try and get down to the MotoGP at Phillip Island too. You know, I love my motorbikes. I, 
I had a Ducati for a few years there, which tragically I had to sell. But there'll be another bike when I have a midlife crisis, no doubt. But uh, <laughs> did you have to sell that because you had a wife and children? <laughs> Perhaps. But uh, it was my decision as well. When my wife hears this podcast, we all decided it, it was uh, it was the right time for Bianca to to find a new home. <laughs> you named it yes. so that means it was the very hard it was a hard it was, a hard uh, it was emotional <laughs> but uh yeah it was just the bike but yeah you know i love shooting the bikes again you know compared to guys in race cars you know when you photograph you know motorcycle races you know they're hanging off the bikes often you can see their eyes out the visor you know the knees are scraping their elbow to elbow and you know we get awesome access again at phillip island you can you know be so close to the action there and you know, if ever you photographed a motorcycle crash to it, it's pretty spectacular. And there's some huge high sides, you know, where the guys, the bikes flip up in the air and literally, you know, launch them skywards. And, you know, when you, you get a picture like that, it uh, it's pretty dynamic. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I love, you know, the rugby too. You know, we shoot so much rugby here. You know, if you don't enjoy it, then you, you get pretty bored at work if you you don't like the sport you're covering but you know it's funny like i actually enjoy shooting just about every sport i'm assigned to and i think that's one reason you know i'm so lucky that i love what i do because you know it's pretty rare that i i shoot a sport that i don't like and you know back at the vancouver olympics in 2010 you know i was assigned to a few days of curling and i had a blast it's like who would think curling's fun and you know it was such a cool sport to shoot and you know, I was playing with tilt shift lenses and I was going up high and down low and then some of the countries had the wacky pants on and was shooting all the colour and, yeah, it, it's funny. It's like you can make a good picture out of any sport, I believe, and you just have to, you know, think differently and, you know, think about lens choice or angles or using the light in a weird way and, you know, if you run out of ideas, you can start playing with multiple exposures or things like that. But. <laughs> Yeah, that, I think that's the challenge, right? To make a sport that might not be as dynamic, you know, exciting, you know, in the printed image. I think this is. Uh, I've mentioned this again. You know, I sort of, uh, you know, it's we're only, we only talk about sports photography, so I do retread some old ground. But I think you know, with the cameras that we have now, the technology we have now, like you said, you know, the the opportunity to to play with exposures and tilt shifts and all this kind of stuff is something that you know the photographers 30 years ago had no no chance of doing you know they didn't have you know first it was all on film and you know you didn't know what you got and you know you couldn't just work on a you know a nine frame multiple exposure and then and then see if it worked and then if it doesn't work try it again and then try it again until you get something that you're happy with you know and this is the you know even like you said with a panning shot that you know this iconic Usain Bolt you know, you might have tried that and then it would have, you know, been processed and, you know, the, you know, by the time you just don't have that opportunity to drop as many frames and try something else. And this is why photography, I think the sports photography industry has changed so much, especially in the last five years in terms of what we are capable of getting, especially with the high ISO as well. That's another thing which maybe you Aussies don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) You Australians that live in Australia anyway, you know, over here I remember doing football over the winter break and not taking the camera off, you know, less than, you know, 4,000 ISO, you know, for two months because it's every, you know, it's night, the the sun disappears at four o'clock in the afternoon and it doesn't come back until seven o'clock in the morning and it's dark as hell and the stadium lights weren't very good and it's uh and you guys down there have got these golden lights and i see sometimes like rodeo shots and 
Quinn Rue <laughs> using some long shadows and Scotty Barber <laughs> using some silhouettes. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna have... lie. We are. We are very lucky with the Australian sun and its harshness. But uh, yeah, just back to the cameras as well. I mean, at the moment we got the World Swimming Champs happening in you know Hungary, like you mentioned, and you know you got a team of guys there from Getty who've shot swimming together for you know I'd say a decade now, and the stuff they're producing you know in the past fortnight over there is incredible, and you know there's all this synchronized swimming stuff that I've never seen before, and it's like you know you'd think those guys had shot every angle from every position and you know worked the underwater stuff to death but you know they've been producing all this crazy mirror image underwater synchro stuff where the pictures sometimes are flipped to and you're trying to work out what's going on and like that's what's cool you know the fact that they've found a new way of shooting some of these sports that you think has already been done every way possible and you know like you said the isos now allow you to like you know do even better exposures from underwater and it's not just sort of silhouette stuff, particularly, you know, in outdoor pools. Exactly. But, yeah, I mean, hats off to them, you know, pushing the boundaries with the underwater stuff. There's some mega pictures coming out of that that event for sure. Well, one, uh, again, listeners will know that uh, I've mentioned the name Clive Mason many times and he, you've mentioned him as well, you know, when you were in uh, in Seoul, uh, sorry, in Korea last year for the, um, or this year for the uh, test event. Yeah. You know, I'm always amazed how Mark Thompson, uh, Clive Mason, and now Dan Istatine, the young gun photographer that they've got working, former editor, now current uh, Getty Images photographer, who just produce, you know, they've been doing, and I think Tom will be very proud to say, I think he's done every Formula One race for the last 20-something plus years. They still come away with amazing pictures and different pictures every year. They're at the same tracks in usually the same light in similar conditions, and somehow they come away with amazing pictures every single time. And it still blows me away how they can do the same sport and still come up with something new and fresh every year. And exactly what you said, I I think I've already retweeted in the last week some of these guys, some of um, Al Bello, Adams, and uh, Clive yeah. uh, Rose, and also I think Lawrence Griffiths. Another guy who won't come on my podcast. Oh, no. He's too embarrassed, but he should. But lol. Yeah, amazing stuff. Podcast. Yeah, amazing photography. Again, you know, the swimming guy, the swimming, the the reflections, the underwater stuff. And I think um, it's outdoors as well. The the water polo for me, water polo outdoors is one of the most picturesque, picturesque and impressive sports to shoot. Um, so, yeah, seeing all that stuff coming through from Budapest, yeah. I mean, absolutely amazing. So, again... You know, we're still you're still pushing, still trying to find something new, and thankfully, you know, companies like Canon and Nikon are providing, are giving us equipment that are giving us the opportunity to do these kind of um, to do these kind of things. Um, what just uh, I think I'll I'll wrap it up quickly because um, I've got to go pick up the kids. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just uh, what can you just give us a quick uh, description? What what kit are you using? What's your uh, your your camera of choice? Yeah, so I pretty much use the uh, Canon 1DX Mark II for just about everything work-related. Uh, mm-hmm. On occasions, I use a GoPro. Um, I have a little Olympus I play with as well. Uh, I really like, you know, the DJI drones. Obviously, I'm using the Phantom 3 and 4 at the moment. Uh, oh, okay. 
I use a feeder rest, the 360 camera, but, you know, the majority of sport we, you know, we shoot, I, I'm using, you know, the Canon 1DX system with EOS, you know, L-series lenses for just about everything. And, you know, I've been Canon since, literally since I was at university and, you know, I've, I've tried other systems and I like them and I think, you know, they leapfrog each other every couple of years in terms of tech and quality of, you know, cameras and stuff. But, you know, Canon, you know, you want to you want to have a system that you can rely on and you're confident in and I think that's the most important thing. And, you know, whilst there's other great systems out there, it's like, you know, I'm not confident using that gear and, uh, you know, I look back at the, the pictures I've taken with, you know, the, the gear I've got and there's no reason really to change. So, yeah, I'm happy with, with the the Canon system at the moment and like you said you know the the quality of the file at night now with low ISO or high ISO sorry is like you know so much better than it used to be and you know the colors have improved the tracking and autofocus you know tends to get better each model so yeah what's next I love my 400 yeah my 400 yeah. mil I think is I think I've, you know, like I mentioned before I think 90 95% of my work yeah. is done yeah. what a, on that 400 mil and what a, I just, I, what a lens it is, isn't it? So <laughs> geek out a bit on how great, of, how quick it tracks. Yeah. Uh, it's getting lighter. The, you know, they get lighter every. You know, I think they come out every sort of like four or five years. Yeah, they get a bit lighter, and you know, it's just, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal lens. You know, when you're doing like a, you know, you can zoom right in and see a, you know, even though we shoot full in the frame, but you just shoot full in the frame, you can zoom in the guy's eye and still see, you know, the the red on the eye. Yeah, it's, uh, absolutely amazing what these cameras can do these days. So um, it's true. Look, um. I think we're. Uh, I'm gonna. I want to wrap it up. Um, I'd like to thank you for coming on, um, and I wanted to congratulate you on a fantastic year. And I guess uh, next time I'll see you will be uh, in about five or six months' time in uh, in Korea. Yes, we will have a Korean barbecue together. A Korean barbecue. Now that you've been there with Clive Mason, I'm sure you know all the best restaurants. <laughs> and uh, maybe an apres apres beer. Uh, if we find the time before it gets too hectic, because uh, for those of you who know the Olympics, it's as hard as we ever work, but we have a few years to recover from each one. But, yeah, I mean, the Olympics is awesome, and I think when you get together with guys from around the world that you're friends with, it, it makes the experience even more exciting. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you. Yeah, get usually flies in a few, uh, you know, I'd say no more than just under a week early before it starts just to sort of get acclimatised and everything. And, yeah. Uh, that's sort of the calm before the storm, as they say, you know, just that uh, yeah, before it all kicks off and then it's start to finish tournament wise, it's, it's nonstop. There's no, no rest at all pretty much. So yeah, looking forward to that one, my first winter Olympics and uh, I'm sure you can show me the ropes. Yeah, mate. Uh, it'll be a, it'll be a big one. So uh, yeah, I can't wait to see you and the rest of the crew and yeah, thanks for your time with the interview. It's been awesome chatting. Yeah, exactly. And I've, yeah, I've been meaning to ask you these questions because, you know, like I said, these two pictures, you know, especially these two pictures, I know you've, I know you've got a, a, a full image bank full of amazing sports photography, but those two pictures for me just, you know, stood out last year as, as standout, standout pictures that, you know, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if the next, uh, because I remember um, just quickly before we finish the, at the, the first, the, in London, the London Olympics, Getty had a big office and there was a massive wall as you walked into the office, you know, where all the editors and all the assigning staff and all the marketing guys were and everything like that. And they had a big picture of Usain Bolt celebrating crossing the finish line 
um, from his Beijing gold medal. So my prediction is, <laughs> and I don't know, if, I don't know, I know it's still a long way away, but in Tokyo, the office will probably have your picture of Usain Bolt smiling, crossing the finish line as the big welcome to the Getty Images office uh, picture. That's that's my uh, my prediction three years out from the uh, from the event itself. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So, well, let's see. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, Cam, thanks very much. And um, yeah, we'll speak to you soon. We'll do. Thanks, Dino. Cheers, mate. In my last podcast, I said I felt sorry for the next guest after Tony Duffy, the man who started the sports photography industry, as he is a tough act to follow. But I couldn't think of a better guest after the legend with one of the best out there right now, Mr. Spencer. Cam, many thanks for your time and a Korean drink of your choice when I see you in February. A special mention has to go to Kai Pfaffenbach and Jason O'Brien, not only for being good guys and top photographers, but also for their iconic images from last year too, which got a few mentions as well. Uh, question. To my small group of listeners out there, do you want a Q&A episode? Um, I did have a show a while back and I got some very interesting responses. So please email or tweet me with any questions and I'll put them aside and uh, once I get enough questions up and a little bit of time, as you know, these podcasts don't come out very regularly, but they do come out, I'll get an experienced sports snapper as well as uh, chucking in my two cents worth for, uh, with some answers. You can contact me on Twitter or on Instagram on AllSportsSnapper or my website AllSportsSnapper.com. As uh, people around the world who love sports photography, and it's not that many of us, I will say that writing uh, more than one question should be easy enough to answer. So I look forward to hearing from uh, you out there in podcast land. Reviews. Is that too much to ask? I spend many hours recording and editing each show and giving you so much information for free. So uh, if you could spare me a minute of your time and chuck a review into your iTunes or uh, your podcast listing app of choice, that'd be great. Uh, sports photography should be recognized as the art it is. You can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever other pod platform you use so you don't miss a not-so-regular show. Many thanks for letting me into your headphones or car stereo. And last thing for me, observe, listen, and the best photos.